0: Good morning, open door. Morning. You can go with me to Hebrews twelve twenty-two. Hebrews twelve twenty-two. Pray everyone's Thanksgiving went well. Hope you got your preferred food, dessert, turkey or ham, sweet potato pie, pumpkin pie. I found that for me, I can never figure out my preferences. I just need to try it all every year. And we have a lot to be thankful for. I'm thankful for you all, thankful that we had this opportunity to worship together this morning. Our Hebrews series is Superior Son, Persevering People. And the author of Hebrews has been addressing the very young New Testament church and specifically the Jewish believers along with some Judaizers who were influencing the church there at that time. And as we've learned, the entire book is a sermon. And it's written in the first century on the other side of the world. And it's God's inspired word. So this sermon is still preaching with power and relevance. It certainly preaches to us here in the 21st century on this side of the world on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So we'll study verses 14 through 29. But for now, I'll just read for us Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Hebrews 12:22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Pray with me, Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word Thank you that your word does not come back empty, that it's alive, it's powerful. So we're asking that you would, by the power of the Spirit, uh, let your word do its work in our heart this morning. We pray that our time together would bear fruit for your kingdom, bring honor and glory to your name. It's in your name I pray, amen. So the original recipients of this book would have been steeped in the Old Testament. And so throughout the book, the Hebrews author has been explaining how When it comes to Old Testament commands, when it comes to the prophecies about the Messiah, whether they're direct prophecies or the foreshadowing, uh, when it comes to the Old Testament's sacred worship mandates, the sacrifices, the festivals, and so forth, that Jesus fulfills everything required by God. And beyond that, Jesus reveals God. God has spoken in these last days through his son. So Jesus reveals God as he fulfills all these elements of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is about God, it's about his character, it's about his, his power and sovereignty in the story of humanity. It's also a long, vivid account of humanity's inability to meet God's holy standard, to live up to the standard of righteousness that is required. And it's also about the incompleteness of the law when it comes to accomplishing true heart transformation. And it all comes together, the, the Old Testament is fulfilled, God's holy and righteous and just and merciful character is, It's fully demonstrated, fully vindicated in the person and work of his superior son. And so Hebrews tells us that Jesus is superior. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law or religion. He's better than all the other prophets, priests, kings, judges combined. He's the ultimate mediator. He's the perfect high priest who makes the sacrifice and who is the sacrifice. And so even now he's seated at the throne, still mediating, still making intercession for us. And so what do believers, what do followers of Jesus do? Well, we persevere, right? We're saved by faith in Christ alone at whatever age God saves us. And then a week later and a couple years later and decades down the road, one day at a time for a lifetime, we persevere in the faith. Now, we're not perfect we are desperately dependent on the Spirit. We are desperately in need of God's grace and forgiveness every single day. There are ups and downs. But by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, we persevere to the end. And our passage today, Hebrews 12, 14 through 29, it lays out some, some principles, some pursuits, some practices of perseverance. What do we believe and what do we do in order to persevere? What do we believe? What do we do? Now, these principles and practices, they're not in a certain order. They're not sorted out into categories and there's some overlap, but they are all equally important. They are all essential to our perseverance. And so we'll just look at them as they come up here in today's verses. So verse 14, first of all, Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone. So we pursue peace. Now, if you've worked in an office or on a job site where there's at least one other person, if you're a parent or a child or a sibling, if you have a neighbor, if you're married, and definitely if you've attended church, you know that peace is not automatic. We won't necessarily have it 100% of the time, but we pursue it. To know Jesus is to know peace. And it's to know that calmness that comes not from the circumstances of the moment. It's the peace that comes from faith and trust in God believing that he loves us and that he is in control. And that's even in the midst of whatever conflict might be brewing, whatever storm or hardship that life might be bringing our way. And so many of you are are excellent examples of this. The foundation of it all we find in Romans 5, 1, which says, by faith in Jesus we're justified and therefore we have peace with God. So since we have peace in this ultimate vertical relationship with our heavenly father, Well, that means we can pursue peace in all of our human relationships. So we don't pursue peace because it's easy or because life is easy or because all of us are just always so easy to get along with. Certainly not. I won't name names, right? But no, since we have peace with God, we can pursue peace with each other and with everyone else. Verse 14 again, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The pursuit of holiness is part of perseverance. The pursuit of holiness is an inherent part of the Christian journey. Our God is differently pure and righteous and clean, and holiness is purity as separated and distinguished from that which is impure, defiled, corrupt, and profane, and profane in the sense of earthly. Because there's a whole kingdom, there is a whole system that is of this world. And the enemy of God is the one who has some power and dominion in that kingdom. Now, the kingdom is very temporary, and that power and dominion is very temporary, thank God. But for now, it's very real. And so perseverance is rejecting the things of that unholy kingdom in order to love and pursue holiness. Because holiness is the essence of God's character. You won't see God if you don't have it. Holiness is who he is. So my wife and I will celebrate an anniversary in a couple months. Uh, suppose we go out for our anniversary meal, and as we sit down to eat, Amy says some nice anniversary things to me, such as, you know, happy anniversary. I love you. I appreciate our marriage. I'm so glad about these last 25 years. I can't wait to spend the rest of our lives together. But then how illogical would it be if she went on from there to say, but, but, There's something about you that I have a little bit of problem with. And it's basically your DNA, Uh, it's your genetics, which manifests itself in in your personality and the sound of your voice and your hair color and your eye color and your height. Well, of course I'm gonna be saying, hey, uh, you're describing me. If you don't love those things, I don't think you love me, right? Well, that's how it is with God and holiness. To say, I love God, I worship God. I can't wait to spend eternity with God, but Holiness really isn't my thing. Well, that's contradictory. To love and pursue God is automatically to love and pursue holiness. Holiness is who he is. Now, the believer doesn't strive for holiness in order to become a Christian and perhaps see God if that self striving is sufficient. But the believer most certainly perseveres in holiness because they are a Christian who will one day see the holy God who they have worshiped and pursued. Jesus lived the perfectly holy life that God requires and he's the only one who did so. And so we're saved by faith in him alone. And those who live by that faith pursue holiness. We're children in a different family. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We're aliens, we're pilgrims in the unholy kingdom of this world, a kingdom that's just gonna be destroyed in the end. And so we have a whole different focus. We're looking in a whole different direction Colossians 3.1, if then we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So the philosophies, the thought patterns, the beliefs, the agendas of this world are not ours. Now when it comes to the people of this world, of course, we relate to them. Love, concern, service, sharing the gospel with them. We love everyone. We love the people of this world, but we do not assimilate. Instead, we persevere in the pursuit of holiness. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So how is grace obtained? Well, we have to think of think about everything that we've been learning in Hebrews. Uh, Grace is not obtained through the worship of angels, or through adherence to the old sacrificial system, which is what the Judaizers were teaching. It's not obtained through adherence to any religious system. Grace is obtained by faith in Jesus. It's because of him that we're covered in the grace of God. And so it's going to be by continued worship of him, that God's grace will empower us to persevere and to do our part to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Or said another way, to see to it that we spread grace because there's a community, there's an evangelistic component to this practice. Verse 15 begins with the command, not the suggestion, the command, see to it. In other words, do your part to make it happen. So as recipients of the grace of God, we are to then be purveyors of that grace to everyone else. It helps me to think of a grass seed spreader, just the ones you walk behind. So if you feel that thing with seed and then move, grass seed is gonna fly. We've been filled with grace as we move through this life god's grace should fly everywhere from us and this is a beautiful part of our our corporate perseverance here together as a church family because when we gather on sunday mornings or when we in small group or or at any time it should be the grace of god that drives our worship the grace of god that drives our interactions with one another and this is regardless of our personality or our relational style whether we're an introvert or an extrovert. Now, the question is, have you received, have you experienced the grace of God? If so, then by all means, see to it that everyone, whether it's in a Christian context here at church or everyone you come across in daily life, see to it that everyone hears and sees and experiences the grace of the gospel from you. Now, if you're like me, as I read this and as I hear myself saying this, I think, ah, that's not my style. I can't do that. Well, here's the thing. None of us can do it any more than any of us can save ourselves from our own sin or follow any of God's commands by ourselves. But that's why we have the Holy Spirit to empower it. That's why we have God's grace that works in us and through us. God does it just like he empowers all of our perseverance. It's a miracle that he performs. It's a miracle of grace. And so we act the miracle. We persevere And we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Verse 15 again, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Also see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Now, bitterness here in the context of the early church and here in our church, it's a metaphorical root that is a person within the church who turns the focus off of Christ turns others away from the gospel onto religious practices or superstitions or humanism or anything other than Jesus. And by that bitterness, many are defiled. Root of bitterness can also be an attitude of the heart. It's a heart that, again, the focus is not on Christ. It's a heart that lacks faith and trust in God. That's the essence of bitterness, lack of faith. This really hits home for me because I can be really good at bitterness. The way to think about bitterness, it's when we allow experiences, the experiences of life to drive faithless, sinful emotions, thoughts, words, and behaviors. Bitterness can spring up for all kinds of reasons, but there are some common examples of what we're often bitter about. It's things like the past, past hurts past sufferings, past offenses, past failures. Also things like others not meeting our expectations or life not meeting our expectations for that matter, right? Money and career, uh, marriage, parenting, academics, even ministry, life just not working out how we wanted it to. There are some clues and signs that we're bitter. If we find ourselves complaining about life, complaining of past experiences to others, and not including the goodness and faithfulness of God as part of that discussion. There's a right way to talk about life. There's a right way to talk about the past. It's something like, man, it was tough. But here's what we learned. Here's how God was so faithful through it all. Here's how his love and grace were sufficient, and here's how his grace continues to sustain us even now. Other signs of bitterness would be things like lack of gratitude, complaining, lack of generosity, selfishness with our time and money. You know, bitterness being a lack of faith, it gives me the idea that I need to protect myself from future wrongs, or I deserve to keep as much as possible for myself to make up for those times that I was hurt, to make up for those times that I was taken from. Persevering faith says that God can be trusted to take care of me. And so as long as what we're doing is in obedience to him, we don't have to protect ourselves in that way. We can just go ahead and obey God. Or as Southerners like to say, we can just go ahead on and give and serve and, and do what God wants us to do. And this is in spite of the real significance of the things that we've been through. Because the Lord knows we have been through, and there are brothers and sisters at this moment going through some things but we don't fight bitterness by minimizing what we've been through. We fight it by maximizing our focus on the love and faithfulness of God, maximizing our focus on Christ. Other bitterness clues are these excuses that flow out of our bitterness It's stuff like, well, you know, I've been through hard things and so I should be allowed to lose my temper sometimes or lie sometimes or to lash out in anger or I should be excused when I just don't show up on behalf of my church family, or if I refuse to commit to regular, faithful, persevering service. You know, service can be a cure for bitterness. It can be a great source of joy. If we, and trust me by we, I am pointing the finger straight at me, if we would persevere in gratitude and service with as much faith and diligence as we persevere in complaining and bitterness, if we had as much faith in the power of God as we have in the power of our past, bitterness would be uprooted. There would be substantial kingdom impact. Bitterness, like all sin in its foundations, to lack of faith, Hebrews 11:6. without faith it's impossible to please God. Bitterness doesn't believe God, bitterness believes the faithless lies of the Garden of Eden. And these things are quiet, they're subtle, they're even subconscious sometimes, but it's things like God isn't good, He can't be trusted. The gospel can't be all there is to a meaningful relationship with God. There's gotta be something more to it. God can't use my past for his kingdom. God's grace is not enough for me to move on and live a faithful life. And Jesus, yeah, I know he's the superior son and all that, but he isn't worthy to be the primary focus of my life, the driving force of my life. No, instead, just gonna tend to this little garden of mine. Feeding this root of bitterness is going to be my main focus. And as those of us who struggle with bitterness know, once that root takes hold, it's just a matter of time before it springs up and starts consuming everything and everyone around us. It's like the verse says, it causes trouble and many are defiled. So what does the persevering follower of Christ do? he or she roots out bitterness with a holy vengeance. And I need your help with this. We all need each other's help through the power of the spirit to see to it that we all believe and that we all say together, God is trustworthy. And Jesus, the superior son is stronger and better than any pain that I have experienced than any offense or suffering or disappointment that I endure. So bitterness, you can leave. Our focus is on Jesus the author, the founder, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. With him and because of him, we reject bitterness. By his grace, we trust God. We're gonna persevere. Turning others away from faith in Christ, an attitude of the heart that expresses its lack of faith and infects others. And we have both of these at Open Door. Can I plead with you as a pastor this morning? Please root it out, confess, repent, believe, persevere. God can be trusted. Jesus is better. Verse 16, Hebrews twelve sixteen. also we're still within the same sentence that began with see to it. So see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now these verses harken back to Genesis 25 and 27 and somebody who the original Hebrews audience would have been very familiar with. Isaac's son Esau, twin brother to Jacob and the firstborn son of a patriarch of the covenant who stood to receive all the multi-generational privileges and blessings of a firstborn in the line of Abraham. And in a moment of hunger, he traded it all away for a bowl of stew. So Esau, of course, is a solemn reminder for all of us here this morning. The shallow temporary payoff of any sin is always absurd when you compare it to the loss and the devastation and the carnage that comes from it. Now, sexual sin is mentioned here, not necessarily because of Esau, but because, of course, sexual immorality in particular will always demand far, far more of us and far, far more of the people who we love the most than it could ever provide. And Esau, he's an Old Testament example of the unholy one who trades what's truly valuable for mere, momentary, empty, earthly satisfaction, trading long-term blessing for short-term gain. And later, Esau, with tears, he tried to convince his father Isaac to give him the blessing of the firstborn, but by then it was too late and he was rejected. So when you think about Esau being rejected, it's very important to know The structure, the wording, the context of this verse. Because as we know from the rest of Scripture, God is gracious. He is merciful. He's like what Jesus described in the parable of the prodigal son. So when we come to our senses in the pigsty of our sin, and we come to Him in humble confession and repentance, our God loves, our God saves. He is a good, good Father. But Esau's repentance here was not that, it was the shallow, selfish regret, the change of mind that he had about what he had done. Esau's was not a humble repentance and confession of sin to God for his salvation. That kind of repentance and humility and faith, it's enabled by God in the first place. He's not going to reject it. If you look at verse 18, we'll read a couple of sections here. So Hebrews twelve eighteen: For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Skip down to verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. So here in our beautiful state of North Carolina, we get to have these fun discussions about whether we prefer the mountains or the beach for uh, vacation or trips or retirement or whatever. Do we have any uh, mountains, not beach people here this morning? All right, all right. And then anyone who says no, just put me near the sight and sound of those waves. Good. So we have two mountains here in our passage today. There's Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. First of all, Mount Sinai, and this is another reference to the Hebrew scriptures here in Hebrews. Hebrews 12 is referring back to Exodus chapters 19 and 20. So Hebrews 12 reiterates how there was thunder And lightning and smoke on Mount Sinai, darkness, gloom, a tempest, or a storm. And the people were terrified by the booming voice that split the air like a trumpet. They didn't want to hear it anymore. And Moses himself trembled in fear just at the sight of Mount Sinai. Why? Well, they were near the burning, blazing presence of a holy God and his perfect law. And to be there without a perfect mediator is terrifying and yet even in this place of dramatic threat and fear the law couldn't save the Israelites from their idolatry because ironically they built and worshiped and frolicked immorally around a golden calf at the base of that very mountain so they rejected the commands of the one true God who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and they bowed down to an idol So back in Exodus, the distance from the people to a safe, thriving relationship with the Holy God seems like an infinite distance. That's Mount Sinai. There's another mountain mentioned here in Hebrews 12 and that is mentioned repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and that is Mount Zion. Now geographically, Mount Zion usually refers to a hill outside Jerusalem. It's also sometimes referenced synonymously with the city of Jerusalem itself. But spiritually speaking, Mount Zion is the actual city of God, the dwelling place of God, the presence of all his angels without number. It's where you find God and where you find all the treasures and blessings that belong by inheritance to the firstborn. Both of these mountains, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, they show us the primary principle of perseverance, which is the gospel faith in the gospel. We cannot approach the fiery perfection of Mount Sinai and our attempts at self-righteous law-keeping and our calf-worshipping have us separated, hopelessly separated, from Mount Zion. So the expanse between fiery judgment for a lawbreaker and salvation to firstborn status in the kingdom is a distance that none of us can travel. We are in desperate need of a better sacrifice, a new covenant. We need a mediator, we need a savior. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, again, Old Testament history that the original Hebrews audience knew very well. In Genesis four, Cain's sacrifice of the fruit of the ground was not approved by God. Meanwhile, the blood of his brother Abel's animal sacrifice was approved by God, And it paid a temporary atonement it made a temporary covering for sin. But just a short time later, the innocent blood, because of Cain's rage and jealousy, the innocent blood of Abel himself spilled from his body into the dust there outside Eden. And that innocent blood cried out for vengeance and condemnation of his brother Cain, the sinner who had caused his death. In about 12 minutes or so, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper because there's a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Not a mere temporary covering for sin, not temporary atonement, and definitely not vengeance and condemnation, not a word of vengeance to us who are sinners like Cain, but a blood that speaks a word of redemption, forgiveness, full acquittal, eternal atonement. Now, don't be mistaken. Verse 29 does say our God is a consuming fire. If you're standing at Mount Sinai trying to keep the law to avoid its punishment or worship an idol, be warned. God did not change. He does not change. The same voice that sounded the warning from Mount Sinai here on earth now rings the warning from heaven. The earth and heavens will be shaken and everything will be gone except that which is of God's eternal kingdom. Only that which is of Mount Zion will remain. Hebrews 12, 25, don't reject the warning. Listen, God's grace and mercy are precious and valuable precisely because Mount Sinai is right. Mount Sinai is absolutely just and fair. But do you see see it this morning? It's Mount Zion. The lesser things of this world are going to be destroyed when the shaking comes but not Mount Zion. Mount Zion is going to stand forever. You see these bumper stickers that say coexist. Well, Mount Zion is the actual miraculous coexistence of truth and grace, justice and mercy, purity and satisfaction, holiness and joy. Wait a minute. Purity and holiness and satisfaction and joy? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is nothing in this profane earthly kingdom that can deliver all of that. And so there are some things for us to reject. And these are things, not people. We love people. We serve people. We treat people the way Jesus has treated us with love, compassion, we give them truth and grace. But there's some stuff that we reject, some bowls of stew, so to speak. We reject humanistic self-help new age, pseudo-spiritualism, we reject the prosperity gospel, we reject health and wealth, heresies, we reject the Hollywood worldview shallow, plastic, materialistic, godless, we certainly reject everything about the adult entertainment industry, we embrace and submit ourselves to God's designs and purposes, his holy designs for human behavior, human relationships, human flourishing, which means that we reject the so-called freedom of self-expression, which is really nothing but chains of the soul. And we reject the so-called enlightenment. This actually just a rearrangement of the same old stench and darkness that the old serpent hissed at Eve in the garden, hey, you can be like God. And students, listen, be warned by Esau's mistake. We don't have to bow down. We don't have to turn huge chunks of our lives and our attention over to the social media networks and to the entertainment industrial complex that does what? What well, just recirculates and spoon feeds poisonous bowls of stew for the masses at the expense of our mental health, not to mention our spiritual health. Also, they can make another dollar in their attention economy. Look, we all need to run. We need to flee, as the Bible would say. We need to reject the constant offers of the unholy stuff of this earthly kingdom, a kingdom that's just gonna be shaken into oblivion in the end. We need to look at the temporary ruler of this temporary world and say, hey, we have an eternal inheritance. You can keep your stew. Why would we consider that when we have Jesus? Why would we consider that when we have Mount Zion? If you're here today and you're not yet a believer, then you probably don't need me to tell you that your life experience up to this point has just been a futile striving to satisfy Mount Sinai by being good enough, by keeping the law of some religious system or maybe by trying to comply with the, the maze of inconsistent, contradictory, impossible standards of our modern social system or political or economic systems, as far as that goes. If, if you don't know Jesus, and we've all been there, if you don't know Jesus, your life has also been about modern versions of the golden calf, chasing after the empty pursuits of sin and pleasure. Those cheap, counterfeit gods that don't do anything but over-promise and underdeliver while they destroy and while keeping us from that, which is truly satisfying and beautiful and valuable. If you're not saved, first of all, don't hear what Hebrews does not say. The message of Mount Zion is not, uh, hey, good luck to you. If you're good enough, if you pursue holiness, if you don't take the stew, and if you persevere sufficiently, perhaps you'll be saved, we'll see. No, the gospel is good news. The message of the gospel is repent of your sin, trust in Christ alone to save you now. Your salvation is available to you in this very moment. By faith in Jesus' perfect righteousness, his holiness is given to you as a free gift. He's the one who satisfied the legal demands of Mount Sinai by keeping the law perfectly and then suffering the punishment of a lawbreaker in your place. So by faith in him, you're saved from the wrath of Sinai that you deserve and you are freely granted the inheritance of the firstborn, Mount Zion. Believe and be saved today. God doesn't save us if we persevere. God saves us to persevere. God saves us so that we'll persevere. Verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. By faith in Jesus, we are given the unshakable kingdom. So we have the ultimate hope. An essential ingredient of perseverance is hope. Of course, history is full of the stories of people who endured incredible suffering, excruciating conditions because they had hope. Hebrews 619, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Hebrews 11:1. Now faith is the assurance of what we hope for. As believers, we persevere in this life because we have the ultimate hope that is our next life. Think about the Apostle John. Here's Jesus' disciple. He walks with Jesus for three years during his earthly ministry. He sees the miracles. Uh, He hears the teaching. He sees Jesus crucified. He sees the risen Christ. He sees Jesus ascend. A few decades go by, and John sees Jesus again because in the book of Revelation, God gave John a vision of the future. And John saw Zion, the holy city, descend. John saw the post-shaking universe. What a sight that must have been. Revelation 14, one, then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. We are going to be with him, with the superior son in his presence on Mount Zion. There is no greater hope. Another man named John, John Newton, he's famous for his hymn, Amazing Grace. Many of you know that John Newton, the hymn writer, was a former slave trader, vile offender of God's laws, who came to the cross for grace and forgiveness, and who persevered in his life as an abolitionist. So John Newton was familiar with the terrifying threat of Mount Sinai and with the blood that speaks a better word. In a different hymn, John Newton wrote this, Let us love and sing in wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Jesus has brought us to God. The distance from the consuming fire of Mount Sinai to the glories of Mount Zion seems infinite. Tradition says that Golgotha, the place of the skull outside Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, it might've been a hill or a small mountain, but regardless of elevation, the distance from Sinai to Zion is actually no further than Calvary, no further than the outstretched arms of our Savior, the true and better Abel, whose truly innocent blood spilled from his body into the dust outside Jerusalem as he hung there between heaven and earth and between the two mighty mountains of our great God. Jesus is his true and better Jacob, who instead of tricking us into sacrificing a birthright and blessing that's rightfully ours, he sacrificed his very life so that he could give us a birthright and blessing that's rightfully his. Peace, holiness, grace, freedom from bitterness, the inheritance of the firstborn, Mount Sinai's purity and justice, Mount Zion's peace and victory, saving deliverance from the consuming fire and citizenship in a holy, unshakable, eternal kingdom. It's all available because of Jesus. He accomplished everything necessary to save us. And so then, as saved believers who are indwelled by God, the Holy Spirit, we have all the power and we have all the hope we need to follow him and to persevere to the end. He's worthy. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to persevere, to pursue peace with each other and with others in our lives that you would help us to Pursue holiness, that you would help us to focus on Christ, that we would resist and fight bitterness because of Christ. Father, I can't think of, I can't help but think of my brothers and sisters, some of whom are going through very difficult things right now. God, I pray that they would know your peace and comfort today. I pray that we would do our part to help them carry those burdens. And Father, we're praying that by the power of your spirit and for the glory of your name, that you would help us to persevere. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.